Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Quick bit of housekeeping uh, as we're getting into the holidays. First of all, happy Thanksgiving to those of you in the States. Big one coming up this Thursday. But also wanted to let you all know that I now have the book available on the website. Unfortunately, only to those of you who are in the U.S. Sorry, it's just a shipping thing and we've got dealers uh, that are tied to Cross Country Magazine all around the world. So it's much better for you to get your book from wherever you're from if you're not in the States. But if you order the book on the website, I think I've got about 40 copies between now and Christmas and use the coupon code HOLIDAY, I'll give you free shipping and that'll apply to anything else in your cart. So if you need some Christmas gifts uh, for yourself or for a loved one, head on over to cloudbasedmayhem.com and line that up. Again, the coupon code is HOLIDAY and it'll be good between now and uh, Christmas, December 25th. My guest today is Kirsty Cameron. I was excited to get an email from a fan of the show and a good friend, Viv Foraker, uh, who connected me with Kirsty. I've been flying with her in the last couple British Opens down in Roldanilla the last few years, so I know Kirsty, but uh, she's had some really cool flights recently, a couple records, and a long, she's been racing paragliders for longer than I realized, been on the British team, a member of the world's team a number of times, and just has gotten after it. And we talk about a lot of her history and comp flying and difference between two liners and three liners and her recent move down to a Zeno and why, and also how flying has changed for her with the recent addition of a little boy. She's got a four-year-old, as I do, so we talk a lot about risk and how that shapes how you fly and how you how it may change how you fly and how you pursue it and how it can affect obviously relationships all these things that most of us have to deal with so i really enjoyed this we had a blast and i think there's a little something here for everybody so enjoy this talk with kirsty cameron Kirsty, I'm so glad that Viv reached out and connected us. I've actually been meaning to get you on the show for ages, and that was just a great reminder. Congratulations to your your countrymen. That was Thank a double you. gold with Russ just dominating and showing how skilled he is uh-huh. in very light conditions. Well, the whole and team, the whole team were good, you know. Yeah, they're fantastic, and I know you've been on that team many times, uh, so that must have been I fun have, to watch, I but have. also kind of painful to not be there. Yeah, it was difficult, really. I mean, there's various reasons why I couldn't be there this time, unfortunately. Um, not least the fact that our, our boy, our four-year-old, just started school. Um, mm. So I've got a young family now, so I've got a few other extra responsibilities these days. Um, but, um, yeah, it was, I've been chatting to Guy a little bit, and um, you know, both me and Guy have been on the team a few times over the years. And, um, yeah, we're just so, so happy for the team that, at the same time, we would love to have been there ourselves as well. You know, so. Yeah, yeah. And, and like you said, Guy's been on it many times. And yeah. uh, and so, well, it really looks like the, you know, the juniors program that, that the British have set up is is paying great results. And 
yeah, I mean, I was I was proud of them. I'm not even a Brit. They they just they just did really well. It was neat to see Theo flying so well and Seb and and everybody. So sure, sure. I, I they, you know, they're all friends as well, aren't they? At the end of the day, so it's just just nice. It's just really good to see it happen. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, and for Rush, Russ, you know, I mean, it's fantastic. They've got the double gold. It's just brilliant for the whole team. But you know, at the end of the day, I just so wanted Russ to win. Yeah, and I mean he's been second uh many, many times. We we actually talked sure. about that on the show that he's mm-hmm. you know, he feels like he's kind of lacked that killer instinct instinct over his career and and just been shy, you know, super final a couple times and uh yeah. so yeah, it was nice to take home the big win. Definitely, 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 definitely. He deserves it. You know, he so does. He's been so gracious in defeat so many times that it's just yeah, yeah, yeah. So Couldn't go so to a better, time. better person or a better pilot. Yeah, that, was, yeah, that was really yeah. terrific to see. Yeah. Um, well, let's start there. You know, it's it was the flip side for us. The Yanks just got mm. crushed. We had a really hard race. We had a, mm. quite a few there that had just competed in their first World Cup. You know, with COVID and everything, selection was was quite interesting. It was kind of weird this year, which I'm sure it was yeah, for, for many. That. Yeah, it's a few few new names there, sure. Yeah, which is great. You know, it's yeah. good to give them, yeah. you know, the the chance at seeing what that's all about. But how have, you know, I talked about this a bit with Robbie, you know, the, the Brits in the history of free flight, you know, hang gliding and paragliding have just done incredibly well uh mm. historically and you know you don't come from a place that has great flying i would say you know it has very interesting <laughs> flying and uh there's been some awesome you know the north south cup and you know it's mm. it's a it's a great place to fly but it's it doesn't have you know consistently banger conditions and and i'm just wondering if, sure. if that's the reason you know, you guys have to chase it so hard or what it is you think you know because like you know you you have been on the time the team many times mm-hmm. and uh you know you know that game you flew the r11 you've got a lot of records which we're going to talk about here shortly but um mm-hmm. i'm just wondering what you chalk it up to the the british success yeah, I mean, I know it's often put out there that it's because we have to fly in such rubbish conditions, but yeah, we do, I suppose. I mean, I think less that we have to fly in rubbish conditions all the time, more that, um, interestingly, we don't get, in the UK at least, we don't get a huge number of days each year that are, are really good days, you know, so we do get those really good days, but they're, they're sort of few and far between, really, so um but yeah, I think we're quite sort of determined, that's for sure, to get out on the really good days and, and make the most of it. Um, and I, I suppose we do end up having to fly in, yeah, I say less than, you know, classic conditions, I suppose. So I suppose that, interestingly, personally, I, I'm not actually that good at flying in really weak conditions. I oh, really? prefer it when it's quite strong, so um, I don't think I sort of fit the typical the typical UKXE mode, really, you know. Um, and I've had to sort of train myself over the years to to be more patient in UK conditions and slow myself down and not get sort of impatient, really, with the conditions. And um, when I first started doing competition flying and flying abroad, you know, I went to places like San Andre and absolutely loved it because there you can you can definitely fly at more of a pace than you can in the UK and I really enjoyed that so so yeah I don't know that it's entirely to do with that and you know some of the some of our team 
you know, don't even live in the UK currently and fly abroad. And so, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know whether it's, it's, it's purely the fact we're good in the week stuff. Um, certainly we're, we sort of certainly punch above our weight in terms of, if you think of the number of UK pilots from, you know, quite a small population and seem to do quite well out of it. Yeah, I mean, in in talking to Guy a while back, and I think it was Roldan Eo a few years ago, he was talking about you know the kind of the juniors program. It, it seems very supportive, and there's mm-hmm. it seems like a lot of energy is going into your younger pilots and kind of bringing them up and teaching them the ropes. And uh, you know, here in the states, it's very much more cowboy. Or you know, if you want to pursue that, you can, but you're on your own. You're not going to get any support from Ushba or, uh, you know, it's, you have to fund it yourself and time it yourself. And I mean, I think it, I think that really showed in, in Loma Bola in a sense, the conditions that, you know, you often have to fly in. Cause I, 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 I was down there for the world cup a year ago. I guess that was two years ago now. And it's, you know, it's pretty light and they were certainly had, you know, they had a lot of rain this time, a lot of cloud didn't sound like it was it was the opposite of strong and it was just really patience, you know, won the day mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of hanging back and not leading out much. And, you know, like Russ always says, being very disciplined, uh, and it, it certainly paid off there. And I think the, the Americans really struggled with that because they, they like to go, they like to yeah. go hard. Not the game there. <laughs> no, definitely not. Well, certainly not this the last two weeks anyway. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, tell me about you've you've had some records or something. I, I don't know much about this. What's what's happened recently with uh, some big flights? Yeah, we've had some um, good flying flying in the UK this year. It's not been what I would call a classic year in terms of you know lots and lots and lots of really big flying days, but the ones that have been good have been really quite good. And um, we've had some this year. I decided that I wanted to sort of focus on the UK cross-country, as I said, you know, got a young family now, what with COVID and everything else going on, I thought this year I'm just not going to, I'm not going to travel, I'm not going to fly, I'm not going to get into all of the fuss with testing and everything else with COVID, so I thought I'd just stay at home and just go out on the days that are good. I've got a job at the moment that's reasonably sort of flexible around, um, around my time in the sense that I can sort of get days off from work at sort of fairly short notice, which is good to say. So I just thought, you know, I'm just going to throw myself into the UK scene this year and see what I can get done. Um, so more than normal, because like in a typical year, I'm sort of, sort of giving out quite a few days of holiday to going abroad to do fly, co- to fly comms, you know. So certainly when I'm doing the cat ones, it's sort of two and a half weeks out of my holiday leave. And then um, and if I'm doing a couple of other cat twos as well, so that's taking up quite a lot of my, my leave really. So... So this year I thought, yeah, just pick the good days and take those off and see what I can do. And it's been an interesting year because there's been a sort of a group of us that got together as a, as a team and sort of focused on the XC, um, not just in the air, but, you know, in the planning stages, deciding which sites to go to and very much deciding that we're pretty much prepared to travel anywhere in the UK, just well, within reason, not, not necessarily quite up as far as Scotland, although that has happened this year um but more sort of you know quite happy to sort of travel sort of three four hours um to get across to a good site which i'm sure for you sounds like really small distances but um <laughs> it's quite a distance for us to go each day sure yeah so we've been um 
uh, teaming up with um, Beatrice this year. I've been flying a lot with him because um, mm. he was back in the UK after he'd left gym. And um, sort of between looking for another job, he's he's been out all the time because his dad lives um, up at the Morven Hills, which is a small set of hills out to the west of where I live and um, takes pretty much any wind direction there. And so we've been going there quite a bit and then further out into Wales as well. So going back, what, three years, 2018, I think it was, um, Richard Carter, sort of a renowned UK um, pilot, especially for cross-country, he um, he flew the first 300 kilometres from the site in sort of mid-Wales, flying right across, the, right across England and landing on the East Coast. So we went out to the site in May a couple of times to try and sort of maybe try to replicate that. And we managed to do a couple of flights, um, sort of 250, 250 kilometres in one day. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's crossing the whole island, isn't it? <laughs> pretty much, pretty much, pretty much. Only if you're doing 300, you definitely are. You're going almost coast to coast. So, um, yeah. So that oh, was, uh, must be awesome. Is there? Is there? Yeah. Are you dealing with a lot of airspace when you're doing that? You are. Yeah. You are. I mean, that's the other complication in this country. So to do a big distance in this country is quite an achievement because you're dealing with a lot of airspace as well. So, um, yeah, you must get good at that. We don't deal with airspace yeah. at all here. So whenever I go to the X Alps, I'm always that's the thing I, I worry about the most. It's just oh god, the airspace, the airspace. I think it helped to the world again this time as well, you know, because the Brits, uh, the Brits actually sort of I don't know the white word is respect airspace, but you know, probably probably good at sort of actually flying and actually working with the airspace, you know, and and, and not being too much of a distraction because it, it is a distraction and if you, you you know we've actually got quite good at actually doing our flight and also having to you know keep one a few brain cells on on the airspace as well you know because it, it, it can really distract you so how do you how do teach teach the audience you know what are your steps to prepare for a flight that has a bunch of airspace or you know for for me in the X-Ops, I use that side view on Fly Sky High, and that just mm. has been so valuable. Once I learned how to mm. use it, because you, you can see it. You can see it coming. Okay, well, I've got to be below there or above there. Or, you know, Kriegel sure. talked about it this year that he had to, you know, barely was able to fish through that pretty hard airspace going to Pizpalua. Yeah. And if without that yeah, side view, yeah. that kind of thing's tricky. I, I, I actually try and memorize it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I will actually, before, if I'm, if I know I'm going to do a big flight like that, I will actually, and it's, if it's through an area that I'm less familiar with, I will actually go over that a few times in my head, looking at the screen as well, while I'm at home on the laptop, mm. and actually trying to remember roughly, you know, what, what airspace is going to be coming up. Because typically when we're doing these big flights, these downwind flights, then you're typically doing that on a windy day. So the airspace can come up at you quite, quite quickly. You know, sure. um, you know, one minute you're sort of like thumbing away and the next minute you're like, oh, God, I've got airspace one kilometre, you know, downwind of me. And it can get too late, can't it, on the paraglider because you haven't got that kind of, or certainly you can start to make the flight quite difficult and it can put you on the ground because all of a sudden you're trying to sort of crosswind in thermals around, you know, around a piece of airspace, which is a lot more tricky on a paraglider than even if it was on a hand glider and second on a sailplane, it's easy. So, um yeah, so it's best to try and avoid those situations, you know, and be sort of starting to crosswind earlier than you, than you, you know, um, as early as possible to try and uh, getting up close to the airspace in the first place. Um, 
it's often it's too late once you got really close to it. As I said, it's, it's put me down for an hour. I've had to try and really, really dramatically cross-wing because I've not paid attention to the airspace. Yeah, exactly. So, mm. uh, And in fact, we were doing that on this particular flight from the Ulan Valley where it was quite funny, actually, because we got about um, ooh, probably best part of 100k into that flight. And the first part of that flight was incredibly quick. We did... I think we did the first 100 kilometers in about just over two hours, which is Whoa, pretty long. fast. Yeah, yeah and, it's fast. Um, 50k an hour is average is There's a group of sort of five of the six of us working it, and we kind of thought that we'd be able to um, possibly break 300k that day. We really did at that kind of speed initially. Unfortunately, it then slowed up, and we had a, a, a section where there was a lot of sort of decayed cloud streets, really. And all that all they would do, they, they were almost providing lift but not quite sort of just zeros underneath them and then and then the whole lot was in shadow below on the ground so eventually started dropping through that and then we ended up scrabbling around in the shadow trying to find climbs for a while which is, is definitely one of the cruxes of that flight and then it all switched back on again and then we got out into an area called the Cambridge Flats which is as I said as I say just completely flatlands and that area works really well and you get out into that area and it's kind of like game on again sell planes everywhere and getting much better climbs again so that really helped that day but what i was going to say was so about 100k that's like <laughs> we're on radio and everyone's everyone's mapping was dropping out i think um joe had lost all of his screen entirely guy didn't know where he was which is a typical guy <laughs> i think he was having problems as well and they were literally the, the way they, the guy described it the waiting guy that was a bit behind at this point they were waiting for me to catch up and they come on the map needs to catch up we need to wait for the map because i still had my mapping working and they were literally knew they were coming up to sort of the birmingham airspace but it was going to be a bit more sort of dodgy and uh, guys coming on going kirsty where are we now what's the airspace <laughs> <laughs> It's a bit ridiculous, really. Um, but yeah, so that and that and that showed really that if you if you if no one's got mapping, all of a sudden you're completely blind. You know, it's dangerous. So mm. um, yeah, it's quite funny. <laughs> yeah, it's a good flight. And then and then later in that flight, I think we dropped we dropped Joe, and then it was down to me, guy, and uh, another guy called Tom, and another guy called Dougie, and. Both of them were on PBs by the time we got to 190k, I think. Wow. Uh, and both, they both went over 200k for the first time um, as well. And it was a PB for me that day as well. So it was, it was a good day out. Yeah, that's a great day out. And what were you flying? Mm. Were you on the Enzo? I was on the Xeno. So I've been on the Xeno now for the last two, three years. So I was going to say, down. you've got, yeah. like me, you've got a four-year-old. We both have four-year-olds. Is that... Uh, yeah. is that a, is that a kid decision or is that a is that a uh hours decision or just uh, you're you're not getting the time because you know you you flew the R11 for a long time and yeah. you're obviously I, comfortable I, I, too I much. was you know I went on to an R11 in 2011 um, when that glider came out and of course it was then banned the same year um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I ended up ended up on an NC1 and then an NC2 and NC2 for four years as well so the best part of seven or eight years, I was on those high-end gliders. And um, kind of a crux point, I suppose this often happens with pilots when they step down. I had an incident in San Andre on the NSO2. Noah was, what, seven months old. And um, it's the only time I've ever thrown my reserve. Uh, I was at quite high, about 2,200 metres. 
at the start gate, about literally about less than a minute to go to the start. And it was pretty rowdy up there. Have you flown San Andre? I've flown there, yeah. but back when I was yeah. really early. And I've, you know, we've, okay. we've kind of skimmed through there on a couple of the X Alps, not really, but, mm. uh, you know, I, I, I had a, kind of an eventful flight there when, when there was, the, I've never flown a comp or anything there, let's put it that way. But yeah, yeah I mean, I know it yeah. can get rowdy. Yeah. I mean, I've flown, I probably flown more comps there than any, anywhere else I've flown competitions. I've flown probably six, seven, eight comps there wow. over the years because the Brits has been there a lot and it, yeah, and it is sure. very easy for us to get to. And we can jump on EasyJet and be down, down in Nice in sort of two hours. So um, yeah, it's um, the favorite venue. British to go to. We haven't been for a while, but it's yeah. But and historically, I've loved it there. I was saying at the beginning of the chat that um, the first time I flew there, I just loved the place because I always feel it's a bit like um, if God designed a paragliding venue, it would be Saint Andre. You know, mm. it's, it's kind of like a skate park for paragliding. <laughs> where, you know, like a skate park, they've got all the ramps and the yeah. like places and all that. And you go to Saint Andre, and it's just like ridge after ridge after ridge. You know, and you can fly. They can set tasks in virtually any direction. You know, so yeah, I, I hear a lot about the that it you know from that there's a lot of really full bar racing right on the terrain. That it sounds it sounds like you know especially first timers when they go there are always a little yeah. bit like I mean and if you don't do that you're 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 going to lose the gaggle. You you got to do it and it sounds sounds like it can be a little spicy. Yeah, yeah, there is a degree of doing that. I think on a, on the good days, less so. I think on the good days, you, you can get off the train a bit more. Mm. Certainly there's um, what I call sort of get-out-of-jail-free cars in San Andre. If you get a little bit behind, you can just point at a ridge and you know you'll get there and there'll be a six-metre climb on the ridge every <laughs> single time. Right. You know, you have to wait a few seconds, something will come through. So, um, certainly in the early days, I quite like that because, you know, you typically be on a lower aspect wing when you get a bit behind and you just go right go to that ridge and then boom that goes the climb every time you know so, right um, and, it, and it's big climbs there i mean i think that the time when san andre doesn't work is if it's windy if it's windy it's very thermic and if it's windy as well it just becomes a bit of a washing machine but um mm. assuming they're tasking on on you know decent days when it's uh not too windy then it's good solid climbs there it's not it, they're strong climbs but they're not tiny little course you know like good solid climbs so mm. uh, i think it's a good place to fly yeah. but anyway i was going to say so there i am at the start gate 30 seconds to go it was particularly rowdy that year this is going back two or three years and it's been very dry there all season and we tend to fly there towards the end of the season because in july august it's just too windy um and too strong anyway it was particularly punchy this year and i'm up there on the end so 30 seconds to go and the wing just went uh, it just complete. I think I was a little bit tight. You know that classic thing. Yep. It was pretty yep. rowdy up there. Yep. And you know, and this is the thing that's coming out from SIV a lot. You know, that you just just, you just a little too stiff, a little too overreactive. Just a little bit too overreactive, a little bit tight, and I knew that it was bumpy. It felt pretty horrendous up there, <laughs> to speak. <sighs> and um, it just went on me completely. And I think I just, I think I just held it back just for a split second too long. Um, and it, then it just went bang down in front of me, like literally nose down. This this is all over the course, the whole, you know, it's like when you slide, it's, it sounds like that's in slow motion, but this is all happening over the course of probably less than a second. Sure. And the glider's down below me, and then it went straight into like a pretty tight auto rotation. And I just, I just, 
was the first, it's the first many time when I was like, this flood is, I was just completely spontaneous. I just threw the reserve. There wasn't even any kind of conscious. Right. Yeah. Time thought to about it. it was just, it was just reserve was just out instantly. I just knew it was beyond my control, I guess, completely. Um, so yeah. So the, so the reserve out it came and I was high and I drifted for a long way and I came down and um, the, the, the main reinflated. And I think this is something that's not getting discussed too much with these high end wings is when the, when the thing reinflates, it was, it started downplaying. Basically. Yeah, sure. So I've got the thing in front Hard, of me, probably. pulling me down and, oh, it's horrendous. And um, I thought it was going to end worse than it did, to be honest. And, and uh, luckily I came down hard, but not too hard. I didn't break anything or anything. But that was, yeah, that was a bit kind of like, mm, okay. <laughs> mm, uh, just a little wake-up call. Just a little wake-up call. And I just, yeah. And then I um, I wanted to fly the rest of the conk. And um, Pepe was there. Um, Pepe Mileki was there. And he had uh, his Zeno with him. So this this is now when the Zeno had just come out, really. So this is 2018. And um, he said I could borrow that for the rest of the comp if I wanted to. And I thought, yeah, you know, I'd like to flow in anyway and see what it's like. So I flew that for the rest of the comp and I, was, I just I just loved it. I mm. just loved it. So I decided to buy one and that's what I've been flying for the last few years. So so for sure that incident was um was definitely a, a kickstart towards me stepping down slightly, I think, really. And I just really like flying the wing. It's just, it's just, it's just a bit easier to fly. You know? mm. It's a bit easier on the ground. I, I like the fact it's easier on the ground. You know, I mean, sure. you know, it's always a case with wings, isn't it? How they behave on the ground is going to be a real good indicator of how it behaves. Yeah, in the air. absolutely. Yeah. And um, it, it's just a lovely, cohesive wing on the ground, and that that very much translates to how it flies in the air as well. So. Yeah, and it's so, and, it, yeah. and it's proven itself over the years as well. I mean, we saw when we saw a ton of people jump onto it. I think mm. the initial thought was, yeah, these folks don't have the hours to fly a two liner. But it's really, you know, it doesn't seem to surprise. Uh, I mean, still paragliding, there's still accidents, of course, sure. on every wing. But mm. um, it seems to be quite a gentle. When if you know if people move to that from a three liner, it seems to be a, quite a nice move for most people. Yeah, I think so. I mean, as you say, you still have to give these wings respect, and it's still a absolutely still a relatively high performance wing um, for sure. But it's definitely a little bit more benign when it does go for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, a little bit easier to get back than a than an Enzo. Yeah, I think so. I've, I've touched wood. I've not had any. I hardly ever collapsed, to be honest. It's only not in the UK flying. Right. But that's something nice about UK flying. You don't really get many collapses. <laughs> Right. Yeah. 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 The solenoid thermal flying. It is. Yeah. No, it's a good wing. It's a very good wing. I mean, it's often the case, as, as you say, people jump onto these wings because they're the new thing, and they're, often when they're initially reviewed, everyone says, you know, it's the best thing. Yeah. Since sliced bread, and and and, and typically, it's as a you know, you're about a year later, you start getting the stories, don't you? About you saying, oh, yeah. well, actually, <laughs> no, actually, yeah, maybe it's not right. quite so good. Um, but I think. Yeah, generally speaking, I don't think anyone's really sort of come back and said that the Xeno is a bad wing at all. Really, it's mm. classic. Yeah, it's kind of mm. held up, held up over time for sure. Mm. Um, you know, like the Enzo Three, it's it's been out for a while now, and it's still you know people are still loving it. Yeah, um, I, I was saying to Russ, that he needs to get back from Argentina and get the, get the Xeno Two certified. <laughs> 
priority. Yeah, they, they, they are, it's coming. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, yeah. I, I'd love to hear more about your son and being a mom and flying because that that's mm. not a topic we've we've discussed with too many moms um, mm. on on the show and. You know, because I'm asked that all the time. And what what's changed with your you know risk tolerance and how you approach mm. the sport? And uh, I'd I'd love to just hear if there's been a shift. There has been. I mean, I think I don't think. I suppose I should say there's been a shift because I don't want to be taking risks and all of that kind of stuff. But if I'm brutally honest, I don't. That's not the main reason, to be honest. But the main reason is around. Well, I suppose there is a there is a risk element, and that that stems from the fact that I'm flying less hours. Mm. Definitely flying. Just less don't hours. have the currency so, that you did. Yeah, and right. I think that I'm sort of taking more risk. I'd be taking more risk if I was flying an Enzo all the time, say abroad, you know, um, in, in 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 bigger air and so on. Because because I do think these wings are a little bit exponential in the way they behave. You know, like mm. I think I'd be fine flying an Enzo three in the UK. I don't think that'd be a problem at all. But I think when you, you take wings into into bigger air, they ramp up quicker on, on the higher end wings. That's my experience of it anyway. Things things are, get amplified quicker um, in bigger True. air on, on these high end wings. So so I think um, given the number of hours I'm doing, it's just a bit more. It's a bit safer and it's a bit more relaxed, really, as well. Flying slightly lower lower spec wing, mm. but still with enough performance to. To generally cut it, I mean, I noticed um, at the in sort of cat twos, like flying the Brits, for example, that being on a Zeno is not really too much of a disadvantage. But you, you go to PwC or you go to a cat one, and you're at a major disadvantage being on a Zeno. You really yeah. are. I noticed that in uh, the last Worlds I did was in Macedonia, which was phenomenal competition. You know, we did ten out of ten tasks. Um, there was two things going on there. One, I wasn't particularly race fit, really. I'd only done a couple of comps that year before I went to Macedonia in August, um, which didn't help. You know, I think by I think by the end of the second week, I was just about race fit, right. uh, really. Um, just warming up to, at the end. Yeah, gen, gen, genuinely, really. I think um, mm. so. There was that going on, and um, and also you just you just lose out. You know, on on the longer glides and stuff, you just you're just at a disadvantage on the Zeno compared to being on the Enzo. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. you see it. You, you you see that when we had Chelan this year, you know, it was pretty hard. You know, on the downwind tasks, you know, the Alpinas mm-hmm. would be right with us. You know, you don't yeah. really see these huge jumps until you're flying triangles and there's no wind. You know, when there's exactly, uh, or you're flying triangles and you're going to wind. Uh, yeah. Then yeah, you know, then yeah. it's really okay, and that's where you really start noticing. I think it's mostly uh, Nick Reese said it once that I, I really appreciated this that. You just have more options on a, you know, yeah. it, it gives you, you know, you have to yeah. be, you have to be a much better pilot if you're flying a lower end wing to keep up because you're, you you're just going to, you're going to come in a hundred meters higher, 200 meters higher every time. Yeah. And you just yeah, have yeah, more yeah. time to fiddle around to find that sweet spot that, whereas, you, you know, you yeah. Do. I'll come back to that in a minute, actually, in relation to um, the UK season this year, flying with Idris, because it was, it was quite interesting. Um but just sticking to the to the to the question you asked me about being a mum and everything, but yeah, I mean, I think yeah. So so that's uh, I think that that's the main reason for sort of stepping down in terms of wings because I just not 
just not doing the hours really to sort of mm. justify flying that level of wing. And yes, you then do come unstuck when you get to the big comps. For the most part, I think um, I think just being on a slightly lower spec wing is the way to be at the moment, really. Honest, but yeah. but but yeah, still able to go out on a big cross country day or go to a cat two competition and sort of hold my own. I wouldn't want to be on anything less than a you know than the likes of Zeno, really, mm. really, because then you really are in a different world, really. Um, but, uh, so yeah, nothing's really changed massively, other than the fact that I have less less time to commit to selfish sport that is paragliding. Yeah, because <laughs> it, it is quite is. a selfish sport at the end of the day. It's quite quite time consuming, isn't it? It's time consuming, and it's not it's not a particularly you know it's not a particularly exciting sport for for the family. I mean they. Noah, Noah likes coming out and watching me fly on the, on the hill and so on and so forth. But, you know, once I'm up and in the air, then, you know, we'll see her for yeah. dinner, maybe. Yeah. yeah, quite exactly. So it's like, you know, yeah, quite selfish in that respect as well, really. So, um, yeah, yeah. Has that been more, uh, is this something you struggled with in the sport before you had your son? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think even in and around a relationship as well, it's it's uh, and even with friends, you know, relationship with friends and stuff. I mean, for UK flying, you have to be able to say, you have to keep your options open in the summer. You have to be able to not make any commitments to anybody about anything right. because yes. yeah. you know if it's a really good flying day, you need to be able to go flying. And and if you did make a commitment to someone and then you're with them, it sounds awfully selfish to say it, but you're looking at the sky and you're not really focusing on what you're doing because, you know, if you're out for a meal or something or with some, some friends and in a park or something and you're just looking at the sky going, I just want to be flying, I just want to be flying, I don't, you know, which is an awful way to be to people, you know, really. So mm. so I have always struggled with that, uh, you know, over the years. Um, and I, I know it has cost me, you know, probably some, some friendships and stuff over time. Not because I've fallen out with people, but just because I don't see them enough, you know. Yeah, sure. I mean, eventually, so, you know, well, I'm not going to invest yeah. a lot of time in yeah, Kirsty. Yeah. She's just going to go paragliding. I, exactly. I've also struggled with this, especially lately, more so than before. And I don't mm. think that has as much to – maybe it does and with my daughter. But uh, I I have wondered this, uh, that it doesn't – and this might be totally erroneous, but I'd like to get your thoughts on it. But I've, I've mm. often thought that that doesn't strike the Swiss and the French and maybe Germans as much as it does us. And let me explain that. I, I think because it's really seen as a very legitimate undertaking. You know, th mm. This is, you know, for the French and, you know, you can make money doing it. You This mm. can be your job. Um, mm. And mm. I've often found that, you know, like when we go through the fundraising aspect of the X Alps, I just can't stand it. I, I can't stand asking people for money to send me paragliding. It just doesn't seem right. Even though when you ask those people, they say, well, you're, it's incredibly inspiring and it's, I love watching yeah. it and it's awesome. And, you know, I, I think this is a real personal issue that I, I need to get over. But what do you think about that? I mean, I, you, you know, if you're Maxine Pino, this is your job. This is what you do. It's legitimate. Yeah. You know, Charles yeah. Cazot, this is what you do. Yes, yes. I mean, there is a very different setup for them, isn't it? I mean, very. I can relate to that with UK flying in other, in other ways as well, because I think um, 
you know, cycling family and all of that. But in terms of us having access to sites in the UK, it's all private land ownership. You have to sort of almost beg farmers to allow you to fly on their sites. And, you know, some do begrudgingly. Others will kick you off if, you know, the slightest thing happens with some paraglider landing in the flight, they're on place, you know, all that kind of stuff. So mm. it, I do feel that we're very much begrudgingly accepted as some kind of wacky sport in the UK. Whereas, right. you know, you go to France and it's literally you've got, you know, members of the French cabinet who fly paragliders, you know, so it's, right. it's, it's a very, it's a very much a different um, demographic, isn't it? And a very much a different sort of, level, as you say, level of acceptance. And it's much more integrated into the culture almost um, than it is. Because um, I think that, I mean, how many, how many people fly paragliders in the States? You know, to the I've heard the same side. thing since I started twenty years, almost twenty years ago, and now it's about yeah. six thousand. Yeah, I mean, can you? I mean, that's just six thousand. Yeah, I mean, that's they minuscule. say they say you can with the hang gliding and paragliding, it's ten. But I've heard a lot wow. of people say, yeah, but that really depends on how you count. You know, are they just renewing their license mm. and never even flying? But the the number mm. I hear a lot is six thousand. I mean, it's just. It's pathetic. It's just dropping the ocean. It's literally, I mean, most people, even in a place that has flying, if you say that you're, you're a paraglider, they say, oh yeah, I've done that in Cancun behind a Mm. boat. You know, they're talking about parasailing. They literally don't know what it is. So it's just not, you know, you don't even see it like you do in the Alps. Um, Mm. So Mm. yeah, it's, it's definitely not considered, you know, if, if, if I told somebody this is what I do for a living, which I don't, but I mean, if I did, they would go, what? Yeah. <laughs> this is a job? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting, actually, because um, I almost sometimes feel, oh, sounds stupid to say it, it's such a British thing, I think, that and my partner, Emma, sometimes she said, you know, tell them, tell them that you fly, you meet someone new. I said, tell them you fly paraglide, it's really interesting, you know, and it's like, I often sort of hold back and don't want to, you know, because I just, <laughs> Often, I think just people think you're a complete loon if you tell them that you're paraglide. <laughs> it's interesting, actually. Um, this year, I went to a local site. Um, there's a site quite close to me. So I can get out of flying sites in about my nearest sites, which is under an hour. Um, I can get to other sites in sort of local sites in sort of an hour and 20 minutes, that kind of thing. It's pretty close. But I've got one site that's sort of literally 40 minutes away. I don't fly it very often because it's, it's kind of under airspace for Heathrow. Not mm. right under the airspace. You can fly up sort of 2,500 feet. But there's, there's much better sites you can go. You can't find any distance from it because the, the direction downwind just takes you straight towards Heathrow and London, so you can't go anywhere. But it's um, quite an interesting little site. And there's a, a there's a particular little flight I'd always wanted to do from there, which you sort of fly down the ridge for a few kilometres and back. And it's just, just a really nice scenic flight. And I never had the conditions there to do it. And this year, I finally managed to do it in really good conditions. It was great fun. You know, no distance involved, you know, no records, nothing like that. But it was just a really fabulous flight. Anyway, that the day I arrived at that at the site, I literally walked onto the it's like a little opening in the trees where you take off. There's a couple of benches there. It's in the middle of summer and it's in the evening, but there was like a couple of groups of people up there. And there was this guy sat on the bench with his with some other friends or family, and he says, You're not gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna jump off of there now, are you? You're not, going to, you're not going to go and jump off of there. And I was like, uh, yeah. I mean, and it just, just like, there was, there was no interest at all. It was just like, you're a nutter, you know, and right. you're about to go and kill yourself. And <laughs> anyway, so I just thought, I'm, I'm, you know, so I picked up and everything and um, I had a perfect takeoff and I took off and I went straight out to like, you know, two, two and a half grand in fantastic conditions. And I just thought, oh, well, hopefully you might see it in a slightly different light now that I've right. you know, 
done that, but probably not. <laughs> probably, probably not. You're still, you're still a complete nutter, which I guess yeah. we all are to some extent. Um, yeah. So you, you, you just gave away. My next question was going to be, where are you from? Where do you live in the in the UK? It sounds like you're in the south, down by London. Mm. And then, and how did you, how did you get into this? What was the, what was the catalyst? Yeah. So um, years ago, my uncle used to fly hang gliders. So um, we used to go out on the hill and watch him. I mean, not every day, he lived in another part of the country, but when we visit and stuff like that, sometimes we go out and watch him fly. So that was my first sort of introduction to it. And that really got me interested. And um, yeah, so when I was obviously a lot older, I was, I was able to actually have a go. I had a little go at hang gliding and then got into paragliding. So, um, and now I live down, down south. I live, uh, I'm originally from the south, but I lived um, in Wales for a while. Um, but I've been living down south now again for the last sort of 20 odd years. Um, and we live kind of 20 miles west of London. Mm. So um, just outside Greater London. And I can get out to sites sort of west of here, north of here. So I can go into Wales as well reasonably easily, not too, not too huge a distance. Um, so there's a lot of flying sites, but they're all, I mean, from, I'm sure compared to what you're used to, they're, they're tiny. You know, the sites down south are tiny. Um, that that but all you need is somewhere where you can get off and find a climb, and once you're up in a thermal, it's you know you're up in a thermal. The site mm. doesn't matter anymore in that sense. So you sort of tend to call them sort of little launch pads, really. Um, there's a site we flew this year, um, which is kind of just north of London, going up towards a place called Luton, which is well, there's another airport there, another London airport. And this site is under airspace where you take off. It's three and a half thousand feet. Um, but then you fly west from there. It's an easy launch, and eventually you end up in with less airspace restriction. And um, it's not a site that gets flown that often, and it really is literally a launch pad. And in fact, we, you, you'd be amazed if you went there. But I mean, any even British pilots are amazed when you go there because you, you take off in pretty much a flat field. And I, and I genuinely mean pretty much a flat field. It's wow. got a very very slight slope to it. You can't saw this. The bit where you take off and you take off and you just flop into this you literally have to pick your feet up go over a couple of bushes and flop into this tiny bowl <laughs> which and I, and again i'm genuinely not joking if you if you flew to you could fly to the bottom in about 10 seconds oh my gosh it. and um but at the back of this small bowl is kind of like some huge beech trees which kind of almost double the height of the hill really so i think <laughs> Thermals literally hit these trees, and um, you can and people have done you know people have done over two hundred kilometers. Oh that. my gosh! Yeah, it just yeah. we wouldn't even look at that as a place. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, we're always talking about well, you don't have that much room to work. Yeah, with two thousand feet, you know, you you're talking about yeah, <laughs> you've so got less than the treetops. Yeah, I mean, literally, yeah, I think mean, the whole height of the hill is probably sort of three or four three or four tree height. I guess this is why the Brits are so good at, you know, low saves. You're not, for you, you're not even low. <laughs> for us, no, oh my it, God, right yeah. on the deck. And for you, you're, well, we're way above launch height. This is nothing. Well, that's right. I mean, one of the sort of things that gets said is when you take off on a British hill, your, your first climb out is your first low save of the day. Oh, that's great. So you're, <laughs> you you said your, your, your uncle was a hang glider and he kind of got you into mm. How long ago was that? How long have you been flying? So I've, I've been flying, I kind of learned sort of at the end of the 90s, um, but I've kind of been sort of properly into it sort of from sort of about 2005, 2006. I did my first comp um, out in um, 
Lorania, which is not too far from St. Andre. Yeah. When they first sort of started the Ozone, Shabra Open out in France, I think it was the second year that had been run or the third year in 2006. Mm. That was my first comp. And um, I haven't looked back from there, really. I kind of, so that was that comp. And I think I finished, I finished top woman of that comp. And out of all of the, back, back in the days of DHV 1-2, I was like second of DHV 1-2 class in that comp. Mm. That's most of the gliders, really. And you were so that was, uh, Yeah, so that was like, oh, okay, um, <laughs> not too bad, not too shabby. So the following year, I did um, the Brits first time. I did uh, did a competition in an open in Piedrahita and then an open in San Andre uh, in 2007. So, so yeah, so sort of about for 15, 16 years now that I've been going at it. And has, have, have comps been the most, has most of your focus gone into comps? Sounds like lately it's been more kind of, you know, distance and kind of fun stuff and you've got a nice group of people there. You can go, yeah. you know, hunt down big distance with it, but is, yeah. is most of your time been comps? About half and half, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. 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 I've always done quite a bit. I've always tried to do a reasonable amount of XC. Never had the chance I've had this year to really just focus on just on the XC. I've always you know, it's only reason I'm at XC each year. But yeah, I mean, a lot more comps um, than, I, than I'm doing at the moment, for sure. Yeah. Mm. Um, I would, yeah, normally most years, I well, for a good seven or eight years, I've been doing at least one cat one each year and doing at least two or three other comps as well. So. When you yeah. look back at those, you know, 15 years of flying comps, um, was mm. there any kind of aha moment, breakthrough moment where – you know, like Russ talks about discipline, has there been any kind of a mantra or something that's really clicked for you in those years where you've gone, okay, I've got this at least somewhat figured out? Mm-hmm. Well, sort of like the opposite of that was when, say, the very first time I did the Brits in Pietro Hita, I did terribly. I mean, absolutely. Um, I mean, as a, you know, it's a proper kind of, um, what's the word? kind of toughened me up I suppose because mm. it was a real leveler because just <laughs> just took your ego and shook it around and oh, stomped it on the ground and walked I was, away I know, was in tears by the end of that competition because <laughs> like I say the year before I done quite well in this this entry-level competition I've been doing some quite good distance flying as well you know and um I think I yeah the beginning of that beginning of that year I'd gone out to Australia um I was on a project which overrun and they kept telling me when I'm going to take my leave. And then the next minute they were saying, well, you still do all this work. So I made a bargain with them that um, if I finish this project, can I just take all of my leave in one go? So I took six weeks of leave and just went out to Australia and uh, just literally went down the eastern seaboard doing loads and loads of flying. And I went to Manila and uh, did my first 100K and just, yeah, I had a great time with all of that. And then I came back and I, went off to this competition in Piedrahita in the summer and thought that was reasonably okay, I suppose. And I literally just bombed every single day. I just couldn't get the measure of the place. It's a particular type of place to fly. Mm. It's Piedrahita anyway. And um, yeah, I just, I didn't, literally, I mean, and of course it's a place for doing quite big distance as well. So you get all these pilots, I'd be back at the bar, you know, at like <laughs> one in the afternoon. And they're and just they getting get going. to like nine in the evening or something. And they, you know, they all come back. They'd all flown 150K or coffee as well. And um, yeah, it was just very demoralizing. Uh, do you think that, to, Do you think some yeah, of that well, was, uh, when you look back at that, do you, do you think some of that mm-hmm. was expectations? I mean, was it 
was it that you literally went in thinking, yeah, I, can, I think I can do pretty well here and you just didn't have your eyes wide open? Yeah, I think so. I think mm. I, I certainly wasn't aware of, I think there'd have been a, a reasonable degree of trying to chase pilots going on then. Mm. Uh, and I was on obviously on a lower aspect wing anyway. Um, so I think there was a certain case of trying to sort of keep up with the Joneses, I think, and just failing and then falling out the bottom of climbs and then being stuck on a ridge or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, mm. So yeah, I think that, that didn't help at all. Um, but but I sort of picked myself up from that and went to San Andre. And as I said earlier on, really enjoyed it there. Had a much better time. So that that was an early lesson in how to be, how to sort of control, delete, reset yourself and <laughs> carry on. Um, and then... Um, can we, yeah, before you leave yeah. that, can you dig into that a little bit mm. more? Because I think that's something mm. most have experienced. I, I had a similar mm. thing where I had some real beginner's luck and thought, wow, I actually know what I'm doing here. And I, mm. then I learned I really didn't and <laughs> my ego just got floored and, uh, it, and it's also yeah. not that fun. It kind of sucks going to a comp it and does. sucking. It's pretty hard. It uh, it it's just like, God, I got to do this again. And oh, there I go again. I suck. Uh, and so, well, uh, yeah, he yeah, said that it's, um, one of the sort of traits in me that he really likes is the fact that I have over the years been prepared to sort of pick myself back up and, and carry on because it does wreck certain pilots. Some pilots just can't deal with that. No, all, yeah. you know, and they'll be an up and coming, they'll be a good pilot, you know, in terms of their actual flying. But when it, when it comes into like a tech competitive environment, they just can't handle it, you know, if they're yeah. not winning, so to speak. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, only one person wins and everyone else loses. So, um, <laughs> There's you know, a lot of losers in our sport. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you think you think about the worlds, you know, um, you've got 150 pilots there and Russ won and, you know, you've got people that are way down in that competition, you know, but, but they're there and they're competing and they're, they're helping make that competition what it is ultimately. So, mm. yeah, but, um, yeah, you do have to have a certain, like any sport, isn't it? It's mental, really. Yeah, but once you get to a certain level with your flying in itself, in terms of your skill the rest of it is just a head game really um, mm. so you have to uh, you've got to learn to deal with defeat you have to learn to deal with defeat in competitions um, to progress really because you will you will you will fail to start with you know so you learn from that yeah. have you have you kind of identified any type of mental place i'm not articulating this very well but you know a, a headspace a particular headspace you try to take into a comp so you're you know let's let's imagine it's february you're you're getting ready to leave the uk to go down to the brits and roll the neo or the mm. world cup or whatever uh you know you pick it and is there is there some kind of a place you try to get to before you arrive i think so i think um i think it's to try and be humble about the situation actually to realize mm. that at the end of the day you're just doing you know a leisure activity that most people never even get on a paraglider let alone start playing competitions and so on and so forth you know so i try and sort of certainly if i'm if i've had a bad day that's the kind of place i'll take myself to you know and i've always enjoyed the comps for the sort of the buzz of being with other people, being in a different country. You know, there's so much in there to take from a competition. Um, and as much as if you're trying to be competitive, you have to try and keep a competitive edge. And it's not just about being on a leisure holiday. 
But I think on the days when I've done badly, then I, that evening I'll just sort of you know, meet up with meet up with the guys and have a chat and you know have something to drink, have something to eat, enjoy where I'm at. You know, like somewhere like um, when you're out in Northern Ear, it's just a great place to just hang out, isn't it? You know, mm. so um, I just try and just sort of go into that into that kind of a space really, and and just um, just be thankful of things that I that I do have. You know, that helps. That definitely helps me get to a better place rather than being upset and cross about the fact that I've had a bad day because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really doesn't. You know, it really so, doesn't. Yeah. 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 And I think that's something um, I did talk recently um, to my local club and I was, uh, I wanted to touch on it more, but I'm up against the time constraints, but the whole thing about, um, um, you know the red mist really in flying uh especially in competition flying and you know like if you're if you're playing a game of tennis and you're getting uptight because you're losing you know and you, it, it means you hit a few bad balls and the ball goes out the court that's not going to kill you whereas in paragliding it could kill you literally you know mm. um mm. and i think there's even though just some cross-country flying as well because i'm, I'm jumping around a bit now but like on big flights you, people see that you've done a big flight and everything, and they think, "Oh, you know, I bet that was lovely. You're up at you know five thousand feet the whole day, cruising along." It's not like that at all. You, you always get low moments in a big flight, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, where you, you've got to get a low save somewhere. You've got to dig deep, and and it's that whole sort of thing about how deep do you dig mm. before you know you might literally be. It sounds melodramatic to say it, but literally digging your own grave because. You get it wrong on a paraglider, it can unravel alarmingly quickly. I think that's something I've learned over the years as well. You can be you can be in a really good place, can't you, with your flying? Mm. And literally within, you know, a few seconds, you can put yourself in a really bad place if you're not careful. And that mm. and that has caught me caught me out. And I've you know, I've had a couple of couple of instances over the years where I have actually hurt myself because I've allowed myself to get too stubborn, too determined. You know, Russell said to me, oh, you're good because you're, you know, you're stubborn and you're determined. You don't give up. You know, that thing of not giving up. But there is a certain point where you have to give up because if you don't, you're probably going to hurt yourself. Um, so um, how did I get onto that? I yeah, I mean, I I think that that's a, it's certainly a topic that comes up a lot too, is it, you know, mm. that I think yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing to try to um not teach but just you know I, I always worry about you know people getting into the sport because i remember that time <laughs> and you know it, and yeah. it's, it's it's one of these weird ones where like any sport you name it you have to make mistakes to get good yes uh, but our mistakes hurt and yes. uh yeah yes. and i mean I, I don't know if you saw I, I just did this article for xc mag about why this was my last x alps and it was mm. really totally i mean there's a lot of reasons but you yeah. know the time and the commitment and the money and all those things but the, sure. the 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 big one is just that you can't compete you can't be even remotely competitive in that race unless you're constantly pushing way farther than you ever should uh, th yeah. these are not things that we're normally doing i don't even think those yeah. the people that are winning are normally doing that just going <laughs> yeah. out it would be it would be terrifying yeah. and it would be yeah. wrong yeah. you can't do yeah. that all the time um yeah. and it's and it's yeah, I, I, you know, you 
I think there's it's a good thing every once in a while to pull back and get some perspective on that. Tell, tell me about the yeah. some of the accidents you've had. Um, you, you talked about your reserve yeah. toss in San Andre, but I don't know. Yeah. What, what happened? No, I've, I've had a few accidents over the years, and they've all been in competitions, save one. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and I think they've all been in competitions because of that that doggedness, you know, and that you know, not wanting to give up, not prepared ah. to admit defeat, you know. Um, yeah. And a couple of them have ended up hurting me, you know. So I had, um, uh, so I had one instance. Well, I had a very, I had an incident very, very early on. It was nothing to do with competitions. I, I had a towing accident, actually, um, oh. which could have easily killed me. Uh, and I fractured my back in that one. I had a crush fracture um, where I uh, I basically had the wing up with knots in my lines. And yeah. um, when I, I, was, I was doing a conversion course at the time and uh, the glider collapsed on me. Um, very fortunately, the operator guillotine line, which I'm sure also helped save my life. Yeah. And um, I came back down rather too quickly and was passed off the hospital that day. Um, so that was not good. Um, mm. All all the others have, have been in competition. Um, I've had two two major incidents. Um, one was um, in Portugal, Montevideo, and we were. <laughs> sorry, you know these classic examples where you look back at it and with the hindsight of all the things going on on that launch, it's like. It's, it's easy to see what, what was happening, but um, we had uh, gusties and backwind and all of those kind of things going on the launch. So it was obvious that there was things to be aware of that day. And um, I took off and um, turned right along the ridge. We've been told not to fly too far along this ridge. You can fly along into a little bowl and come back. And I went along this ridge and I was sinking out. And I just went through a really, really horrible bit of lift, which I flew through, okay, um, at which point I probably should have turned out and gone out into the valley. But people were sinking out really badly in the valley, so I mm. made the wrong decision, as it turns out, to fly back along the ridge again um, at sort of out ridge height or just below ridge height. And um, I connected either with the same piece of air or another piece of air, which completely did a piece of involuntary SIV on me on the glider. It's on the Menzo one, and apparently it looked like I'd had literally done SIV at ridge height on <laughs> on the glider from what people said, and um, it went into. Um, I caught it, but then it went into twists. So I ended up with three or four twists on the glider, and I'm now descending. And I managed to um, land on a very, very crash onto a very, very steep part of the hill. And um, got away with it. I didn't actually break anything. Oh, so you a, weren't you were you were trying to just you you were like okay, I'm beyond the possibility of a, a reserve. I'm just going to try to pilot this in. Yeah, I was so low. Okay. I mean, I okay. was so low. All I all I had the wear for it's like I'd been punched. It was that bad an incident. So by the time I'd sort of mentally come around from being punched, I was like literally about sort of forty foot off the ground. And yeah, before I did, the next thing would be would have been to go to reserve, but the ground's now coming up so quickly. I just buried what I had left in my brakes and just hit the ground basically. Oof, so, geez. so that was um that was a an incident which could have been avoided if I'd been more reflective about what was going on on the on the side because I imagine I flew through a dusty probably yeah. that's probably yeah. what happened. Um 
And yeah, so I should have been more aware of that. And I should have just flown out into the valley and taken my chances with all the other gliders that were sliding out. Right. And I think most of those gliders got apple course from out in the valley. So that's what I should have done. Sure. Thing. And like you said, at the yeah. end of the day, who cares? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Right. So there was that incident. And then I, um, the most serious incident I had was in the wilds in, um, in Rolda uh, in 2015. Um, so we're going into the last task and I was lying second place female in the comp behind Seiko. So I was in a very good position after two weeks of you know, very competitive flying. And I absolutely loved it. It was the first time I'd flown in Rolda. And I took off and I had uh, a knot in my upper, knots again, knots in my upper brake cascade um and it meant that every time i tried to the glider was flyable um i just i didn't really have too much problem with roll control but every time i tried to fly on full bar i'd get a collapse on that side of the wing mm. um so i couldn't basically fly full bar um and even flying on half bar i was having to sort of weight shift to try and keep the glider straight so it wasn't yeah. great and right. in a normal situation you just go and land you know you just go and land but you know classic situation i'm in a good position in the competition i didn't want to have to go and land because of this um so um i hadn't the, the, the thing with that situation is i'd actually flown away from takeoff by quite some distance before i even noticed there was a problem because i hadn't gone on bar of course right. i was thermaling and Sure. I got sort of at the Stargate. The Stargate is typically there way away from launch as well. They were in that competition. So I was like three, four K away from launch before I'd even noticed the situation. And now I've got 20 minutes before the start, and then the start came up, and off I went. Of course, and I started going on bath the first time and I noticed this problem. Um, so I carried on racing basically, and I ended up getting further and further behind because I couldn't properly be competitive on bar, basically. Um, and then I ended up further and further back on the task and then ended up in a sort of scrubby area off to, off to, off to the, the east, um, slightly off track now because I was trying to work boot climbs. And again, I wasn't really focusing on the day because the day was actually switching off. No one actually made goal on that particular task on the last day, not mm. a single pilot. But of course, I was all I was thinking about was my position and the fact that I was miles behind in this task, not properly taking account of the fact that the sky had changed and the conditions weren't great anyway. And if I'd been thinking about that, I probably would have realized that, you know, maybe pilots wouldn't have got to go around. And of course, I'm trying to stay up in this low scrubby area. And um, I came onto a ridge and I, I'll never know quite what happened this day, but I was crabbing along this small ridge about to land on it. So the day had switched off and um, the glider just went on me completely. Don't know what happened. And I landed on my back and fractured my back. Um, and I, I'd imagine it was, again, it was to do with the configuration of the lines and everything. There's a knot in there, maybe. Mm. No one else was there. So that, that that day didn't end well either. And again, you know, another example of yeah, shouldn't have been doing it, really. Did yeah. Kirsty, have you had any the those incidents or in San Andre, has there been any kind of fear injury that's gone with any of those? Has there been any kind of I know that they we often talk about that it's not so scary if you totally know what happened. Um, you know, if you mm. can kind of relive it mm. through your brain and you know, you were in flow mm. and I saw you know, it all happened really in slow motion versus what the hell just happened? What mm. happened there? It was mm. sounds like that second one was or that that one you just discussed yeah, was kinda of like definitely. that. The that, one in the one in um in 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 Rolda, I don't really know what happened. Um mm. and like I say, all I can really put it down to is there was the fact that the glider wasn't in its 
proper configuration. That's what yeah. caused that to to happen. But I don't actually know, and no one else was there. And it, that was when it actually occurred. I was only sort of you know twenty feet off the ground anyway. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Um, yeah, I suppose instance like that should should have should have changed me. But if, again, if I'm pretty honest, it hasn't. It hasn't it, none of them have made me think I should stop paragliding. Um, right. And and when you when you sort of dwell on that, you kind of think I must I must be a nutter, really. Because <laughs> seriously, because I think a lot of people in a lot of walks of life, you know, they think paragliding is completely bonkers in in of itself. You know, they wouldn't even think of going up in a paragliding. Sure. They're like the guy on the hill that day, you know, telling me I'm mad, you know. And yeah, I I'm quite prepared to carry on flying, even though these things have happened to me, which. Um, I don't know. It either shows I'm mad or it shows that the sport is just so utterly addictive and such a compelling thing to do that that trumps everything else. And I think mm. that's probably it, really. I just I just love paragliding. So. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's, we're, I think we're all a little bit nutter, for sure. Yeah. Um, Kirsty, just I want to be mindful of, of your time mm. here. I know it's getting yeah. a little bit later in your part of the world, but I, I'd love to ask you a few just kind of Quick questions, but you don't have to yeah. answer them quickly, but just kind of fire some some yeah. random stuff at you here. And, yeah, and sure. We'll, we'll I'll try and not dive, dive off at a tangent. No, tangents are great. <laughs> dive as much as you want. So, um, okay. what's the funniest thing you've ever seen in flying recently? The ever? funniest thing? Yeah, you're a Brit oh. and you all have great humor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I can think of something that's quite rude, actually. That well, not rude, but just like just <laughs> unbelievable. Okay, which is um, the very first cat one I did was in um, uh, in Mexico uh, in Valle, mm -hmm. and um, I was that was my first cat one team comp. Uh, Russ was there, and there was another pilot. I don't know if you've ever met him called Mark Heyman. Yeah, he's a yeah Mark, yeah. who's who's kind of retired from paragliding these days, but he's such a character and you know could be quite blokey but just always just happening stitches but everything and um he we was we were stood in the uh the queue um in via they used to have like the red bull arch and you know, yeah, yeah, still do. And yeah. he's all kitted up we're all, all you know you always look a bit like a trust chicken aren't you when you've got your gear on and everything and you know and they were they were quite particular there, like checking the radio. And we're, all, we're all like, you know, so the last thing you want to do is when you're in that, in that queue, we've been queuing up for a while as well. Like the last thing you want to do is, is exit the queue. He's, and he's like, I had to go to the toilet. <laughs> I was like, well, you have to go out the queue and that, you know. He's like, nope, nope. And he just literally went there and then in the queue. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe you just done that. But yeah. Especially so right in front of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that was one, but yeah, that definitely comes to mind. That's <laughs> quite hard to hide. That's it. Yeah, you're not exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, that was funny. So. What would you like to see more of in our sport? Uh, I would like to see more. Um, I would love to see more. I mean, it's a classic, you know, I'm bad to say this, but I would love to see more women um, mm. competing. Yeah, I think, I think actually I like the fact that we all compete together. You know, there's not like in other sports like tennis where it's all, you know, all the women compete together and all the men compete together. I think, 
having everyone commuting together is, is a good thing. I think it actually, over the years, certainly when I first started doing cat ones and obviously flying not just with a few other women, but with a lot of other people, obviously mainly men, helped me improve my skills hugely. So I actually quite like the fact that we're, we're mixed in that sense. Uh, and I love the fact that in paragliding competitions, again, you're not you're not flying in kind of like a, what's the word? Like a different leagues. You're actually all flying together in, mm. in that competition as well. Because in, you know, it's literally like me, you know, when you first start doing a competition, it's like you might be there with, you know, someone like a Kriegel or, or Russ or whoever, you know, who, you know, how, what other sports do you get to actually do that? You know, you, mm. you don't. So, um, so, uh, so, but yeah, I think it would be lovely to have more women flying in the sport, um, especially in the, in the UK. I mean, the, the depths of women competing in competitions in the UK is, is, is incredibly low. So, so yeah, it would be good for that to happen. Um, always get asked as to why there's less women flying but that's a whole other conversation really i think do you have a i mean we have i had a great conversation with adele uh about Mm. this a few Mm -hmm. years back and she had some great thoughts do you do you want do do you want to touch on that for a bit is it it is yeah i can do yeah it's something i've been asked lots of times obviously but um why um i mean I, I think at the end of the day, it sounds sort of glib almost to say it, but I think most women are operating in a completely different level of risk, really. So yeah. I, I think a lot of women don't get into the sport because just the act of paragliding in itself, you know, um, is considered too dangerous, I think. Mm. I think there's mm. an element of that. I think men typically are prepared to take a lot more risk, I think. Um, I think the risk envelope is, is really is quite different. I think there's an element of that. But I think the women that do get into it, I mean, there's absolutely no reason really, apart from um, some of the, uh, you know, physical constraints around wings, wing sizes and stuff, there's absolutely no reason why why women can't compete at the same level as, as men. But I think there's so few actually getting into the sport in the first place that it, it's it's hard for that to get and get translated into into women doing big things in the sport. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, it's really proven itself out in the last few years as well that, you know, you, Mm. you do have radically smaller numbers and yet, Mm. so you can't expect, you know, huge numbers at big comps, but you know, Mm. you've seen Seiko and Lori and this, in this world, Yael was 18th or 19th overall. I mean, she's tiny (laughs) and and Lori and Yael were, well, they were crushing in the X Alps. Not were they did. They both did. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. which is an incredibly physical endeavor. Yeah. It so it's yeah. You know, I was really impressed with the pair of them. Honest. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there's there is definitely this huge disadvantage with the weight thing, mm-hmm. and you know, with Bruce mm-hmm. doing this weightless comps is, I think, an awesome idea, and I, I really hope that gets mm-hmm. more teeth, but. Um, it becomes a lot more popular because it's it's it, there really truly is a, a massive disadvantage there that we don't need to get into. That's been documented a million times. But what's great about paragliding is it doesn't require much different physical ability at all. It's no, it it's, it's in That's the head, right. like you said. That's right. Exactly. It's a very finesse so, sport. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we can sort of compete together, really, because on a sort of purely physical level other than having to sit under a smaller wing, you know, there's nothing really going on that, you know, you can't do as a woman, same as a man, really. You can all walk up a hill, you can all pull some strings, you know, so 
Um, yeah, but it's just getting more women into it in the first place. I mean, I have the reasons. I don't know. I don't know. I sometimes wonder if it's a social thing. I mean, I know flying competitions in, in of itself is quite social, but the actual act in itself is quite mm. lonely, almost, yeah. I suppose. Uh, sure. I don't know whether that's part of it. It's not a team sport in that sense at all. Right. I mean, I know we talk about the team of the world, but when you're actually doing doing it, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's, it's, it's a solo effort, isn't it? Entirely. Sure. So, so I don't you're, know whether that comes into it a bit as well sometimes, maybe. Um, yeah. Does your yeah. partner fly? She has flown. Um, she didn't fly before I met her. Uh, Emma didn't fly. And she she felt compelled to have a go when I when we started going out. That wasn't for me. I really don't feel that, you know, your partner has to, to do what you do sure. <laughs> at all. So, But she, she sort of under her own volition decided she wanted to have a go. And she did get qualified. But she never... She never got the bug, you know. She never really got bitten by it. Um, felt that she absolutely something she absolutely wanted to do. Um, so, um, and, I, and I do think that actually, I think probably with Emma as well. I think it's a, a, to a degree, it's that whole. Not that it's a lonely sport, but it, it, you have to be very self-confident. I think with it actually. And mm. I, I, coming back to that whole thing about mental side of things as well, I think. I notice that in my, even in myself sometimes it's quite a quite a thing to go onto a hill and set up all your kit, you know, which again you're doing on your own essentially, making sure all of your stuff is going to work for you. There's no one else to check it really as such. And then getting into the air and then making all your own decisions about what you're going to do. You know, it's quite it's quite a thing in a way. And I think it's not that's not for everyone, is it? You know. Mm. Um, so how do the two of you handle your Obsession. How, how how does that work in a relationship? That's that's one that that's a question I get from a lot of people. It's a how do you navigate this? Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, we, I we, mean, like you said, it's mm-hmm. it takes a lot of time. It does. We talked about it earlier on a bit, and um, yeah, it's definitely a uh, use that phrase a bone of contention. But it, I think it is to a degree. You know, it is a selfish sport, especially when you've got a, a young family to say, uh, "Do you mind if I just..." Uh, disappear for the day you, know, <laughs> you can look after Noah I'll just, I'm just gone you know I mean that's you know so um and you know Emma's got her interests uh, as well obviously but not ones that take up that degree of you know if, if it's a bit like if you play tennis you might say well can I just go and play tennis for a couple of hours you know that's very different to saying right I'm gonna go I'm going to Columbia for, for day, 10 days gonna, you know yeah, yeah or actually I want to go on a holiday I want to go on a holiday for two and a half weeks <laughs> <laughs> without you like, yeah is that okay you know so it is you know it does it does come into play of course it does and and, and as much as um i still do it you know uh, I'm, i am conscious of the fact that it's a bit one-sided in that respect you know so um, let's end on this last one and you've kind of answered this but i think it's Mm. still i think it's still be an interesting one to, to ask you does free flight make other aspects of your life better or worse Oh, that's that's an interesting question. It really, really is. Um, does it make? Um, I think. Well, we touched on the other one. I think in some respects, it's made it worse. You know, I think in terms of uh, friendships and so on, I definitely pushed some friendships over the edge in terms of them not not happening. Or I probably would have had more sort of um, probably more friendships outside of flying. You know, a lot of my friendships are in flying for obvious reasons, really. Mm. Um, um, so, but I think. 
I think overall, I, I just can't ever imagine it not having been part, you know, a major part of my, a lot of my life, you know, I just, mm. it just, just is me, really. I just, yeah, I can't think of anything better to do than paragliding, really. Mm. But, I mean, I've done other sports as well, um, but none of them, none of them have quite hooked me the way that paragliding has, you know. Because again, to use that, it sounds a bit blip again, but it is Leonardo da Vinci's dream, isn't it? Literally. You know, yes. Can you imagine when he was like, you know, several hundred years ago, he kind of thought about these concepts, you know, like the idea that we can now do it in a way that's even more incredible than he even sort of imagined, really. Imagine. Yeah. It's insane. You know, I, I mean, like on these new guiders now, you know, you can literally get hold of the, the lower line set, you know, in sort of in one thing. It's 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 like nothing there, is there? It's like literally nothing, and that holds you up and hold all that G, you know, and all of your weight. And that's pretty amazing technology, really. That, that can do that, and you can fly hundreds of kilometers like that, and then put it back in a bag and get on a train or get in a car. It's it is a magic special, carpet. Really. It is a magic yeah. carpet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kirsty, what a joy! I, I. Uh, I've been I've been smiling for an hour and a half, and my face is getting exhausted. <laughs> so much. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's great to connect with you. And uh, next time we'll have to do this in person and roll the or someplace where definitely, we find our place definitely. and find ourselves yeah. in the world. But thanks for yeah. sharing your thoughts and time. And uh, good luck raising the little one. Uh, that's a Thank that's, you. that's quite that's a really good journey. Your voice and. Um, yeah, like you say, hopefully we can meet up in person again soon. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Appreciate Wonderful. it. Wonderful. Thank you. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription. And it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account, of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. 
uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show thank you